0: hello and welcome back to freedom machines with Freddie dobbs this episode is brought to you by sysapp that's the rider's mate and motorcycle tracker so you can know where your motorbike is at all times it's also got a lot of other clever features such as saving your rides and checking on the general health of your bike go and check them out sysapp.com all of the details in the written description below right I've now been, just to give you a bit of an update, in the capital of Sicily, Palermo, for three days. And it's been an interesting experience just getting used to Italian drivers. Because once you get further south in Rome, things change noticeably. I've, I've never seen aggression and tooting and... Uh, a lack of following the rules of the road like i have here in southern italy it's quite an experience and you do have to change how you drive here because if you try and drive a ride here with any kind of just level of respect okay you go out letting people go out it doesn't work here you've got to push your way out and fight for every single inch of space to get anywhere at all here Getting used to it, but it definitely takes a bit of adjusting and acclimatizing. I can't believe it. When we were driving down, it took about six days from England down to, uh, to Sicily. We stopped off overnight in Lake Cormo and I completely overlooked the fact that the Moto Guzzi headquarters is on the banks of Lake Cormo. I need to see if we've got enough time on the way back, because that was a huge opportunity missed by me. And just being there on the banks of Lake Como, where we stayed for a night, you can, you can understand where the, the beauty of the Moto Guzzi motorbikes come from, because it is such a stunningly classy part of the world there. To be making and designing motorbikes, and they are genuinely made and designed there on the banks of Lake Como. You can see how they get their inspiration every day to make such classy bikes. It all makes complete sense when you actually see it there. So I, I don't know if I'm going to have time on the way back. I think probably not. But it makes me really genuinely want to go down and check out the setup, hopefully within the next year or so. And Moto Guzzi have a new bike coming out. I don't know when it's actually coming to the UK, but it looks like it's either imminent or it's now out in Italy and that's the V100. That's the sports tourer looking bike. And it is a real work of art. I think that characterful V twin is now a water cooled engine, but it's just the most stunningly unique design bike. A bit like the V85 TT. That's an adventure bike, but completely different to all of the other adventure bikes out out there now. And this V100, you know, they go their own way with the sports tourers as well. I'll just see, because I brought out a few special editions. I'll see if I can find any specs here. Looks like it's going to have a bit more horsepower than I thought, 115 horsepower. I think that's compared to the 76 horsepower in the V85 TT. That is a gigantic jump and that, slightly changes the way I think about this V100, because a lot of people would say for the V85, maybe it's slightly on the, the underpowered side of things when you look at it compared to some of the competition. But 115 horsepower from the V100, now that is a completely different proposition. I cannot wait to test that out, but certainly looks-wise, it's just a stunningly good, stunningly good looking motorbike. Well, it is here in Palermo right now, a, a Saturday morning. Once we got here, just to kind of rewind a bit, I I wasn't sure on the crime rates here in Sicily because I've had a few mixed reviews. So I had to go and put my bike down in, in a bit of a lockup, about a five minute walk away. Um, and it's funny, you know, the difference living in a house or living in an apartment and what it does for, you know, general motorbike maintenance, because I'm right here now in the center of Palermo, the capital of Sicily, and I've parked the motorbike up about five minutes walk away. And, you know, I've lived in a house before, briefly for about a year um, in in my adult life, of course. And I remember when I lived in the house, I'd always loved going downstairs, especially at the weekend, not even specifically to ride the bike, but just to to look at it, to tinker with it, to clean it, you know, maybe to learn how to do one specific thing on it, maybe, you know, learn how to to change the brake pads. So I buy some 20 pound brake pads and if I've got a Saturday morning free, go downstairs, take off the old brake pads and put the new ones in or put the new ones on just to, to learn how to do it. And it was fun because I lived in a house and the garage was just a five steps away from the back garden. So it's a great way just, you know, you don't have to go down 10 flights of, uh, or 10 10 floors, go downstairs, and then walk across to the bike. You know, all this stuff, maintenance-wise, it's much, much harder when you live in an apartment. When you've got a garage, you've got your bikes parked there, you've got your tools all perfectly laid out, it's much, much easier. Whereas if you live in an apartment, you've got to think, okay, right, I need this tool and I will probably need that and that and then I need to go and find somewhere where I can work on the bike and not be too overlooked. It completely changes how, how you look at maintenance and even cleaning and things like that. So a lot of the time I think when we, when we get back from Europe, Just weighing up the pros and cons of getting a house or an apartment. I do get the appeal of being able to have your motorbikes and all of the tools laid out in a nice space because a lot of the enjoyment of biking is this tinkering. Speaking of tinkering, the character you get from that, you know, working on the bike, changing the oil, the air filter, this is all encompassed in petrol-powered motorbikes, it's the character that comes with it. Of course, we're going to be losing some of that when we switch over to electric. I got a very interesting email, and I'm so, so sorry, I completely forgot to save your name, but this is, uh, I really found this interesting about uh, an EV perspective from someone who is not keen on the idea of EVs. There are a lot of interesting points raised here, so I'm going to read the entire thing. Have a listen to this. Hi, Freddie. I'd like to share my thoughts with you on your recent comments about the electric vehicle charging network. Straight off the bat, I'll put my cards on the table. I've got no interest in EV for many reasons. Firstly, the mining and processing of a finite resource, often in horrendous conditions for the workers, so it's simply replacing one horrible polluting industry with another. The fact that the bulk of the battery materials and minerals are located in countries that we really should be trying to avoid being reliant upon for any essential part of our society and prosperity. Until we have a widespread nuclear network of power stations, these vehicles are being charged by fossil fuel power. Far, far from the carbon neutral clean utopia some would have you believe. And then my main reason for resistance. For me, a car or motorbike is defined by its power plant. That's why a V8 speaks to the soul. Or why bikes, whether they're a thumper, a V-twin, a howling 600cc four-cylinder, or a two-stroke, have a personality and their own loyal band of enthusiasts. And I love them all. So that's my stance on EVs. This is my position on the EV network. Now, I just want to butt in here. I haven't really appreciated this side of things before that this gentleman's about to put over from his point of view. And it's something that, uh, that's quite eye-opening and I do agree with it. And it's an interesting point of view here. So I continue. The government should have no involvement at all in the development of a charging network. See, when I just heard this, this gentleman writing in, I thought, what? Well, of course they do. The government has to be the one pushing the growth of the network. They're the ones fining and, you know, they're they're the ones putting all these fines in place, you know, raising the taxes for, for petrol and diesel and saying, look, if you don't buy petrol or diesel, we're going to be doing X and Y, and you won't be able to drive in this city and that city. But then i carried on reading so this is my position on the network the government should have no involvement in the development of a charging network none of the major parties stood for election on a platform of rushing in electric vehicles and by doing that rendering our existing infrastructure and vehicles obsolete and worthless the only party that did that the only party that did have it as a mainstay was the greens and they got 2.5 percent of the vote and have one MP in the UK so there is zero mandate for this policy with the public and if the government does press ahead with this policy they are spending our money not theirs doing it why should my taxes be used to fund a charging network so that let's be honest a bunch of well-off soccer mums can, can feel good about themselves while doing their school runs in their gigantic electric Mercedes GLAs. And not just my taxes, but those of people who don't even drive. There may well be a role for EVs in the future, but I feel it's not going to be batteries. More likely hydrogen fuel cells when the technology is more developed and it has to be and it has to happen organically when the demand is there and funded like any other consumer item, i.e. paid for by the customer. As you've already pointed out it's disastrous when the government attempt to force through uh, to force ill-thought-out policies on the electorate. Cheers Freddie. This this has, I'll be completely honest, slightly shifted my, my perspective on, on how, how we as people should, should look at EVs and the infrastructure. I'll be honest, I did think, well, the government are the ones pushing us to EV, just like they pushed us to buy diesels a few years ago. They're pushing us to do it. So they should be the ones putting their hand in their pocket and getting this network set up. However, like this gentleman says, why on earth should people who don't even drive, which is the best way to save the environment with regards to car usage, why should people that don't even drive be having to pay and fork out through their taxes for an EV network? And why should people who have no interest in an EV network have to fork out for something th- that's not relevant for them? Hmm, that's, that's food for thought. So if things do happen organically, we're, we're looking at, in reality, a very slow rollout of electric charging points that probably in reality, I would say for the next few years will not be keeping up with the increased number of EVs on the road every year. Or like more people are starting to say, although this, even this isn't perfect with hydrogen, far from it, I think, could hydrogen be the way to go in fact? And then what happens with the electric side of things, if hydrogen is actually going to be the new way to come, you know, the new way to, to run our vehicles, are we going to have a situation where we've got petrol fuel pumps with hydrogen, maybe with some LPG, maybe with some electric, maybe with some other things that we haven't yet thought of. And what happens is you've got four or so different fuel or charging options for vehicles. Uh, made me think has made me think thank you so much for sending it. thank you so much for sending that over that is food for thought uh i'll move on to the next one from stefan hi freddie i recently passed my full a bike license and plan to purchase an adventure bike to satiate my wanderlust like a Himalayan. I'd love to plan a trip to Europe and beyond. Uh, a trip to Europe and beyond, sometime in the future. However, I must admit I'm slightly nervous about riding and driving in a foreign country. Do you have any advice on how to tackle this problem? Uh, I know you're well versed in Euro trips, so uh, any advice would be greatly appreciated. Stefan, I had, I had two bits of kits that completely changed. It transformed my enjoyment of almost all kinds of riding, but especially big road trips. See, I remember when I first passed my test, I, uh, you know, I, I think my first Euro tour was probably, what would it have been? What bike would it have been on? My Triumph Speed. Triple, trance speed triple. So probably about three years after I passed my test. Although I could have gone early, I just didn't have the money. That's the only reason I didn't do it a year after, for example. And I, I remember I didn't have proper, I, I didn't have a proper phone or sat-nav mount. So I had this ridiculous big kind of Amazon 15 pound zipped up phone mount on my on my handlebar that broke off and there was no good way of charging it. I remember I had to connect a cigarette lighter adapter, put that under my seat, and then plug that into this extra adapter into my phone. And then the phone mount broke, so I had to gaffer or take that on. And then every 100 miles or so, the cigarette adapter would just come slightly loose. So I'd have to take my seat off. But of course, to take my seat off, I had to take all my panniers off. Because I had a set of panniers, probably about 80 pounds but they weren't specific for the bike, so I would have, and they were attached to the seat. So I'd have to Velcro them onto the back of the seat um, and they were soft panniers and it meant that every time I wanted to get into the seat, I'd have to take all of my pannier setup off. And it would take me about, probably to undo all of the straps and the Velcro, probably about 15 minutes to undo all of my pannier setup. And it was so much hassle that I would dread doing it. And they weren't lockable panniers. So it meant that any time I went anywhere, you know, I'd be thinking, oh God, I can't take off all the panniers. For one, they're too big to carry around. And secondly, I can't be bothered with 15 minutes of unzipping panniers just to go to the loo for five seconds in the service station. So you, you had the sat-nav issues and the packing issues. But then when I discovered I mean, there are plenty of them, but I use Hepco and Becker with lockable panniers, hard lockable panniers. And, and I use Quadlock for my, my phone mount. Those two things changed my experiences completely. Quadlock because I just use my phone. I'm not having to carry around extra wiring or charging things. I've got my phone in my hand. I put the destination I want to go and I just clip it on. It takes half a second to do. It's a game changer. And then for the panniers, I've got Hepco Becker panniers. I just slot them onto the bike. It takes two seconds for each side, lock them with a key. And I've got brilliant waterproof luggage solution there that doesn't restrict the seat. And I can take off within a second and it ev- makes everything infinitely easier. On top of that, just get a small roll-up set of waterproofs. I, did, I remember I did a trip over to Ireland to see my grandparents, and this was when I had my Triumph Speed Triple. I had no good satnav on my phone at all. I had no waterproofs. I also had, at <laughs> this time, I know it's ridiculous because I had a £3,900 pound Triumph Speed Triple, but I had no money at all, and I had no biking gear apart from a motorcycle jacket, helmet and gloves. So I wore, I wore my old Timberland boots with an old pair of jeans. And I rode over, probably about a two day ride or so, over two full days, so leaving at 5 a.m. getting in at one in the morning, so almost two and a half days, right into the corner of uh, North Western Ireland. And I had my two panniers, you know, Velcroed on, strapped onto the back of my bike. I had my Triumph Speed triple. And that bike, you know, that's a, a super naked. That, that is not comfy. I mean, I did a few big tours on it, but it's not the most comfortable bike for, for long distances. And I remember it's Ireland, so of course it started raining heavily and I had no waterproofs at the time. So I was completely soaked it was freezing cold and it wasn't warm enough to dry out my gear. So I was riding at about ten at night, freezing cold, not a hundred percent sure where I was. It just made everything so much less pleasant. Everything, you know, and my even my panniers, my strap-on panniers, they weren't waterproof, so they were soaked. And it can be a living hell if you're not prepared. But if you're prepared then, after that I've got the Bonneville, so much more comfortable. Everything waterproof, the phone working brilliantly with SatNav and the panniers, and it changed everything. And a comfy bike like the Bonneville also helps a huge amount. So, Stefan, you don't really need to plan anything at all. Just get some good panniers, get a setup that works. I use QuadLock. Get a setup that works for your phone for a SatNav because, again, it means you're not having to carry a SatNav with you. Just keep it as simple as possible. Phone as SatNav. You're not having to have any special SatNav set up. And then the panniers, you know, it means you're not having to wear a backpack. So don't wear a backpack, it will hurt your back. Just have two panniers, have your phone as SatNav, and get a nice, comfortable bike and hit the road. Because now with things like Booking.com and Airbnb, you just book as you go. Go on a trip in summer, it will be the best experience of your life. And there's nothing at all to be daunted about. As long as you've got those waterproofs and you've got something to keep warm, because often with biking you can get colder than you think you would, even if it's about 20 degrees. The keys are to make it pleasant, keep warm and dry. If you can keep warm and dry, it will be brilliant even if it's raining. If you let yourself get too wet and cold, you will be in a living hell. Stefan, happy riding. Right, I move on to a bike that, the predecessor at least, was probably, along with the Kawasaki I recently tested, the Z650RS, the sweetest handling bike I've ever tried. One of my favorite all-time bikes, and that is the Triumph Street Twin. The Triumph Street Twin. Sorry, I say that because I get confused. It's now been rebranded to the Triumph Speed Twin 900 as of as of every bike from 2023 so in a couple of months time and I think this is a a tempting bike I'm having a look at this on the Triumph website it's £8,595 for this for brand new Triumph Speed Twin 900 and I think that's a very good price for a lovely looking bike and you can do anything you want on this bike. The handling's sublime, it's quick enough to keep up with anything, you can go touring comfortably on it. So I was curious, at eight and a half thousand, how much would it cost, in reality, for me to get this good value, beautiful looking bike, already so good looking that I really don't need to do much to it, but how much would it get for me to get this bike to where I want it to be with regards to a touring setup, but all genuine Triumph parts. Now, how much is it gonna cost me to have the genuine parts on the bike? So I know everything will be absolutely spot on. So I'll have a look. If I start now, the standard color is is black, but if I have a look and I would love that matte ironstone, so that's 200 pounds, for example, then I need luggage. For me, that's now essential and of course I want the the heritage looking luggage, so I will have one pannier and of course if I get a pannier at £200 I'm going to need a pannier rail at £88. I need another pannier on the other side which is £200 and I need another set of, or another pannier rail as well. So I'm now from 8,595 pounds, I'm now already on 9,363 pounds. I have almost immediately increased the price by 800 pounds. Okay, so I've got the seat here at 300 pounds. Wax cotton panniers, I mean wax cotton panniers, stunning, bits of art, Triumph do a very, very good job with this. Heated grips, extra power socket, and some lovely finishing touches, brush clutch plates, and a center stand for servicing. But it takes the total to 10,400 pounds. And that, let's have a look. That's got to be close to the T120. Yeah, see, I'm just 900 pounds away from the Bonneville T120. You know, when you start adding these extras on, you realize that if you start adding too many on, you get very, very close to the next level of motorcycle up. And then you've got the the decision to make. Do you get a fully kitted out, smaller version, of, uh, of the, the big bike in the sector, either T120, or do you spend a little bit more and get a T120, but with no extras on? Absolutely nothing. It's a really genuinely tough decision, that. Right, I'll move on to the last bit uh, for this week's episode. And that is, I can't remember if I said it last week, but the Royal Enfield Hunter is coming out. Three and a half, or 3,800 pounds, probably. And I just want to have a quick check here. £3,800. Superb value for, uh, for a brand new bike. Really out of this world. Incredible. And these bikes feel like proper good sized bikes. This is why I love the Royal Enfields because, you know, when you buy these bikes, the classic 350 and stuff, you don't think, oh, you know, but it, it looks small. You know, no, they feel like proper sized bikes. So, what could I get? If I'm looking at a bike, and let's just say 500cc plus, so 500cc as a minimum, and, and I don't want it too old here because I think 2008 as the minimum. Is there anything I can get 2008 onwards with a minimum engine of 500cc, anything that I think could compete or better that Royal Enfield Hunter at 3,800 pounds? I'm going to put the minimum price, let's see if I can find price here, at three and a half thousand pounds to see, to see if I can find something for a similar price with a slightly, a, a bigger engine, but what is there that could compete with such a good bike that's brand new, with the warranty, all of that style and everything it gives. And first off the bat, there's a Suzuki SV650. It's a good looking bike that comes in 2017, five years old, and that is three and a half thousand pounds. Then looking at here, next one, Ducati Monster 696 from 2009, that's a 13 year old bike, but just 13,000 miles on the clock, three and a half thousand pounds. Bike that always pops up in this kind of price range. 2008 Honda Shadow VT750 three and a half thousand pounds. That's for 750cc bike. And another bike that always pops up, these great value, big size bikes. Kawasaki VN 900, three and a half thousand pounds for 900cc cruiser bike. Ridiculously good value. I'll just do, I'll do two more because, oh, there's one that's come up here. Okay, so let's say your budget is 3,800 pounds. And you've got that hunter on your mind because it will be stress-free riding and riding with style. But let's say you have a moment of, what should we call it, brilliance or insanity. I just think, you know what? I'm just going to do, I'm just going to go completely left field, absolutely left field here. Let's say I've got £3,500. What about an ex-Police R1200RT? That is a colossal BMW what do we call it, sports touring bike with colossal panniers, 1200cc, 110 horsepower, from the Cotswolds in England, three and a half thousand pounds for that bike. And then you've got the old classic Royal Enfield Bullets coming in, 2019 models, the 500cc, and they're three and a half thousand pounds. I mean, that's fascinating that the old Royal Enfields with the 500cc engine, the old bullets, and I can tell you because I've ridden one, they are incredibly characterful and they are almost as much fun as you could ever dream of having on a bike, but they are not nowhere near as well built as the new Royal Enfields, yet they're the same price at 3,600 pounds as the new Hunter. That's how desirable these old Royal Enfields are getting. I mean, they will not win any awards for being well-built bikes or reliable bikes, or really, you know, good bikes at any one specific thing. They they won't win any awards at all. Yet look at the prices. The prices of them are the same as the Royal Enfield Meteor, the Royal Enfield Hunter at about 3,800 pounds. Incredible, the Royal Enfield prices. They hold their value so well. Okay, right, I'll wrap it up there. I'm about to go downstairs, get the bike ready for the first ride here in Sicily. And I cannot wait. Thank you so much everyone for listening to this week's episode. Thank you to Sizap for sponsoring this week's episode. And I will speak to you all in the next one.